May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same purpose. So writes Paul to that young church community in Corinth. And then he continues. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. This past Tuesday, I bumped into someone I hadn't seen in close to 30 years. About the same time that I was finishing up my theological studies in Toronto, I'd heard from a mutual friend that this fellow had left Winnipeg to study at a Baptist seminary. And then a few years after that, I heard that he'd taken over the pastorate of a congregation on the East Coast. Otherwise, I was a good 20 years out of touch with his story. It was actually pretty amazing that we had even a flicker of recognition when we ran into each other downtown. Truthfully, he had the flicker of recognition I'd have walked blithely past him. I asked him, what brought you back to Winnipeg? And he said something about being between things. I told him that the last I'd heard, he'd been in ministry on the East Coast, and he smiled and said yes, that he'd just ended a 20-year run as the pastor of a Baptist congregation in Nova Scotia. Did it end well? Right away, I saw the strain in his expression. No, he answered. Slight shake of his head and a bit of a sigh. No, it didn't. We only had a minute or two to talk, so we made a tentative plan to get together for coffee at some point, and I really hope we do. Then I was on my way, but those words, did it end well? No, no, it didn't. That look on his face, they stayed with me through the rest of the week. It's funny because that same morning I'd been talking with Steve Bell, and he brought me up to date uh, on the, some news regarding a mutual acquaintance who'd moved to the West Coast to uh, take over pastoring a church there just a few years ago. It sounds as if it had been a pretty tough placement right from the very beginning. Then one morning, this guy, very capable guy, arrived at his church to find that the locks had been changed on the doors. Not exactly what you'd call subtle. <laughs> For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. A church joke. A Scotsman is marooned on a tropical island. And being an industrious Presbyterian sort of soul, he sets about building himself a sort of a compound on that island. Some years later, when a ship arrives, discovers him on that island and goes about the beginnings of the rescue, he insists that the captain come ashore so he can show him all that he's built on this island. It's quite something. There's a, there's a cottage where he lives and there's a storehouse that's kept safe from any animals on the island so he can store his food. 
and there's two chapels. The captain looked at him and said, why, why are there two chapels? To which the Scots Presbyterian answered, that one there, that's where I say my prayers. That one there, that's the one I won't set foot in. <laughs> My version of the joke features a Scots Presbyterian, that's the way I first heard it. Yet you could easily substitute any number of church traditions or denominations and still make it work. It's only funny because it's so sadly true. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you. Several years ago, one of our St. Ben's Breakfast Book Clubs read a book called A Short History of Christianity, written by Stephen Tompkins. It's only 250 pages long, and it's actually meant to be a, a kind of a light-hearted overview of the 2,000-year story of the Christian faith. Now think about that for a minute. 2,000 years and 250 pages, which means that Tompkins covers off every century in roughly 12 pages. In the end, though, it wasn't all that fun to read. One of our book group members found it downright discouraging, even a little bit depressing. Page after page, century after century, Tompkins focuses on divisions, splits, controversies, heresies, corruption, collusion with political power, more divisions, persecutions, fragmentation. This this is our story? For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, Paul writes. He writes it so long ago, yet it is fresh news all the time, sadly. But Paul's not content to let that be our dominant story. He knows that that community has been fighting. And that they've begun to divide along those lines defined by whose leadership various people in the community recognize. I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul asks them. Clearly wanting them to answer, no, no, of course Christ hasn't been divided. Christ can't be divided. And if that community in Corinth is able to see that, maybe they'll begin to get past all of the fighting. He's trying to return them to first things. And though over the course of this letter to the Corinthians, Paul will offer some very concrete counsel on some very concrete problems and issues, what he most needs to do is to tell them that every common sense assumption about how things work has now been upended. They think that they know some things about the way of the world and how communities should work. But until they admit that none of that actually matters anymore, until they can embrace what Paul calls the foolishness of the cross and begin to live in a way that the dominant society will call madness, they'll just keep quarreling amongst themselves. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, Paul writes, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The foolishness of the cross. 
few years ago, our other book breakfast group read The Rise of Christianity by the sociologist of religion, Rodney Stark. Stark's basic question in the book was simple. In the course of some 300 years at the beginning of our Christian story, how did an insignificant little religious movement founded by this Galilean peasant teacher become the dominant faith of the whole of the Roman Empire? In answering that question, Stark wore his sociologist's hat. And so he effectively bracketed off divine intervention or the work of the Holy Spirit. They weren't part of the way he was going to approach this study. Our group found this book exhilarating in all that it said about the heart of the faith that we share. The risk of completely oversimplifying Rodney Stark's work at the heart of his conclusion is the fact that those ancient Christians did at least two things really, really right. First of all, they embodied an ethic of radical inclusion, such that there was a real place for otherwise statusless people in that society. Slaves were welcome. Women who had very little or no status were welcome. Landless people were welcome. In, in that world, if you owned land, you had status. Landless people living in cities like Corinth, there was room. The Christians made room for all. Secondly, though, and maybe even more critically, those ancient Christians affirmed the fundamental worth and dignity of every human life. Now, this translated into two very crucial practices where the dominant Roman culture thought nothing of leaving a newborn baby girl or a newborn baby boy who had some sort of deformity, thought nothing of just leaving them out exposed to die because they really weren't humans yet, not until they were accepted and embraced by a family. That was the Roman view. The Christians recognized in those infants both the girls who were not as valued in, in Roman society and in boys with deformity, they recognized the fundamental worth, dignity, and value. And so they rescued them and brought them up as their own. Think about it as a kind of a, of a, of a strange baby boom. Those families were filled with these children who were raised and carried in those communities, a kind of growth. But the other truly crucial practice that defined those ancient Christians was their care for the sick and the dying, particularly during disease epidemics, where common sense, reasonable ways of thinking about things told the dominant culture to flee the cities, if you could. Whenever an epidemic struck, if you had privilege, you got out. The Christians stayed put. They not only stayed put, but they cared for the sick. They sat bedside with the dying, and they buried the dead bodies with dignity. Not only their own sick, or their own dying, or their own dead, 
but also their pagan Roman neighbors. They were embraced and cared for because even dying, they had this value and worth. This was, in the eyes of Roman culture, absolute folly. To stay in a city filled with sickness, to sit by the bedsides of the dying, to take, to touch those dead bodies and then to take them and bury them, it made no sense to the Roman way of thinking. And yet, in Stark's view, it is precisely these kinds of actions that bore deep witness to the truth and the integrity of the Christian message. And you know the courage of those ancient Christians to do such things was born of a willingness to follow a Christ who gives life precisely by his death. If he could do this, then death has no power anymore. If he could do this, then we have nothing to fear. We can stay and care for the sick. That was the logic. When you think about it in those terms, it puts things like church quarrels, from the pettiest of disputes to what seemed like the most insurmountable of differences into a very different perspective. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, absolute foolishness to the dominant culture, absolute upside-down folly to people who invested in getting power in conventional ways, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, Paul says. To us who have figured out that it's all been flipped on its head, all of a sudden, things like fights matter not one whit. Come back, he says to the church of Corinth, come back to your fundamental identity as God's holy fools, and you will set aside those differences. Indeed, we've done it. There's chapters through the story of Christianity, like the ones Rodney Stark tells, but others all through the story of the church. We have done it. When we embrace the foolishness of the cross, we've done it. And when we fight, we're forgetting the divine folly. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.